Hello and welcome to Filling the Sink, a podcast from Catalan News. I'm Lorcan Doherty and today we're talking about Catalonia's education system. The PISA international test results published in December were a bit of a disaster. The worst for Catalan students since the tests in reading, maths and science were introduced two decades ago. Today we're turning the spotlight on the Catalan education system, asking an education expert and two secondary school teachers why Catalonia's PISA results were so bad and if it's really such a big deal. Joining me today is Uriol Escudé. Good to see you, Uriol. Hi, Lorcan. Good to have you back. Yeah, it's it's good to see you. It's good to be back in the hot seat, I should say. All the best to Lucia, who hosted Filling the Sink for the last few months. She's moved on now to Pastors New. We'll miss her around here. And, uh, dear listeners, you're stuck with me now again for a while, I'm afraid. Uriel, just before we started recording, we discovered that today... Uh, January 24th, uh, while we're recording here, is International Day of Education. We didn't do it on purpose. We didn't even plan this. This is very convenient. As declared by the United Nations General Assembly in 2018, we could not have planned this better. We didn't plan that. But Uriel, the reason we're talking about education today is because of these PISA results, which we've been writing a lot about on Catalan News. Nothing to do with the Leaning Tower. What are these tests all about exactly? (laughs) Yeah, nothing to do with Italy. So PISA is the world's most important education test. It stands for Programme for International Student Assessment. It began 24 years ago, and it's carried out by the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. What do these tests actually evaluate? So basically, they aim to assess education systems worldwide by testing the skills and knowledge of 15-year-old students in different countries and economies. Every three years, a randomly selected group of 15-year-olds take the test in three key subjects, reading, maths, and science. The tests are designed to be independent of the curriculum, so we're able to compare different countries. And it's important to mention that the group is selected randomly, regardless of whether they study in a private or a public school. And as I mentioned, Catalonia didn't do so well this time around. No, actually, we did pretty bad. Catalan pupils got their worst results in the PISA test history and a drop equivalent to a whole academic year of study compared to the last test. Which was just three years ago. Actually, four, because the test was supposed to be taken in 2021, but it was taken in 2022 because of the pandemic. Yeah, and it's part of it. I mean, Catalonia used to get very good results, I think it's fair to say. No, yeah. We've seen a decline over the last decade. Yeah, absolutely. We were always within OECD average, and now we're not. We're below it. And if we look at Spain, for example, uh, we see that Spain has managed to stay within OECD average. So Spain didn't do that bad after all. And Catalonia was always on top of the list within the Spanish regions. Now it fell down the list. Yeah, I suppose one interesting thing is looking at the results from Catalonia, Spain, but also other OECD countries and EU countries. There seemed to be a lot that got worse results this time around. Yeah, Europe actually uh, suffered an unprecedented decline in the PISA test, especially Germany, Iceland, the Netherlands, Norway, Poland. Performance in maths, for example, across OECD countries fell by a record 15 points, while reading fell by 10 points. So if we look at OECD countries, they fell by 17 points, and European countries fell by 20 points. That's a similar fall compared to Catalonia. So it wasn't that bad if we look at other EU countries. 
So as soon as these results came out, the question everyone was asking here was, well, why is Catalonia doing worse now than it was a few years ago? And one education official here in Catalonia said that the results could partly be explained by an overrepresentation of migrant students in the, in the students that took the test. But the very next day, the government backtracked and that was clarified and said, no, uh, the, the kind of proportion of migrant students who took the test were representative of Catalan education in general. So there's a bit of political fallout over that. And the government have since said that some of the likely causes for the, the poor results are child poverty and also school segregation, which is basically the proportion of, of children at each school from lower economic backgrounds or from immigrant backgrounds should be kind of the same across an area, so in Barcelona or in whatever particular town. Uriel, you've also been looking at other possible reasons behind the low scores. Yeah, there's been, as you said, a lot of attention on the press and we've heard experts giving their assessment of, of what's happened. Now, there's various reasons uh, that could explain it. One of them, very obvious, is the pandemic, COVID. But everyone suffered a pandemic, even in Japan, Singapore, the higher scoring countries have also suffered a pandemic. So they've also talked about migration, as you said, school segregation, child poverty, uh, even phones, cell phones in schools. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe the most obvious to me, it's funding. Catalonia's education has been underfunded for many, many years. It's interesting you mentioned phones there. Uh, I mean, we might end up doing a podcast just about phones in classrooms because that's another kind of very uh, hot topic at the minute. Uh, but to find out more about the reasons behind these low scores in the PISA tests, uh, earlier you spoke to Monica Nadal. She's the research director of the Fundación Bufil, an independent education research institution. Here's Monica. <laughs> We've done so poorly in PISA, first of all, because uh, Catalonia has been underinvesting in education for many, many years. I, I, I cannot say forever, but at least for the last 15 years or more, uh, we've been spending less money than other countries and other com autonomous communities on education. What happened is that at the same time that this was happening, the like the, the, the pupil body has dramatically changed. For the last 20 years, we've been receiving loads of immigration, which isn't a problem in itself. It shouldn't be a problem. If you have the policies, you need to address those children. You have to make sure that you have robust, strong policies that take these children, teach them fast and quickly uh, the, the skills to, to be able to communicate and to learn in the new language. And you do it as, as quickly as you can and as solidly as you can. And you put the best teachers to train them or to teach them so that they can catch up and follow their peers. School segregation has to be reduced, clearly. It's not the only problem, but it is one problem. What you find in the schools is that poor kids Migrant kids tend to go to the same schools and those and those kids that belong to wealthier families um, go to other schools. And we have to make sure that each school in the country reflects the reality of the demographics of the people that live in the village. An education system measures its quality on the ability to provide good education to those kids that only have schools to get it. 
because those kids are the ones who need education most, that need a school that work most. If you don't provide education to them, um, you are failing. Educating, as I say, middle or upper class kids, is not, it is complicated, but it's not as difficult. It's not as challenging as providing the same level of education to poor kids. So both of them are excuses. Uh, an acknowledgement that um, we don't have the policies that we need to face the reality that we have. So COVID is partially to blame, but it could have been also addressed. We made some recommendations to the Department of Education, and one of them is, okay, go and identify those kids that have been suffering the most. Some kids have suffered a lot because they've been three, four months at home, in the homes, the parents were either working in, as um, you know, essential workers, or they had been living in conditions of certain poverty, or no one was there to help them out. So, yes, COVID had an effect, but it could have been addressed, but it is not the cause. It would be too easy. We were, as I was saying, we, we had a history at least of 15 years in which the results were mediocre, the resources weren't there, the policies weren't robust. Uh, from 2010, after massive cuts in education, teacher training and development was almost left to zero. So the whole system had been weakened. And, and as I said, well, when you are weakened, when you are weak, then, you know, the, the, the first virus that passes, it just puts you to bed. That was Monica Nadal, the research director at the Fundación Bufil. Thanks very much to her. A very interesting chat you had with her, Oriol. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed talking to her. It was very nice to hear from an expert. And I thought, you know, that that could be one reason, two reasons that would explain it. But actually, when you look at it, there's many, many reasons that affect this problem. One of them being funding. Of course, uh, the system was under a lot of stress and then COVID just made it worse. And I think one of the things she said I really liked is that maybe we don't need that much money, but we need to invest it right. So the fix, the solution is more money, but it's obviously important where that money is spent as well. Yeah, absolutely. One claim that's been repeated for the last 20 years is that Catalonia needs to invest the 6% of its GDP in education. Now, uh, the Catalan education law that was approved in 2009 said that the objective was the 6%, but that's never been reached. Actually, last year was the largest budget on education uh, that the Catalan government approved, and it only allocated 2.5% on wow, education. Like quite a big difference between 2.5 and 6%. It is, and, and though it, that's 7 billion euros, so it's a lot of money, but still far from the objective. And we should say as well, it is relevant, uh, I suppose, to point out that Catalonia, like the edu- education is devolved in Spain. It's a devolved power. So the Ca- Catalan government has powers over education. We've talked about the education system um, once, I think, just on the podcast before when we, we talked specifically about the language immersion model. You know, why do we speak Catalan in schools? Um, looking more broadly at the education model and things like that, there are some education experts who kind of question how much weight we place on these OECD guidelines, these PISA tests, or all. Yeah, there are different opinions on this issue, and it's a controversial one. 
There are those who oppose the OECD guidelines and its recommendations because they say that the OECD is an economic development organization, so it's naturally biased in favor of the economic role of public schools. They also say that preparing young people to get a good job is not the objective, not the main objective of education. Then there's others who are in favor of OECD guidelines. And the PISA test. Exactly. And they say that the results have been so bad precisely because we haven't followed these guidelines properly. So there's a bit of a debate going on as to what, what, what you might say Catalonia's education model. And there's a shift from maybe like a very old school traditional way of teaching to more modern, I suppose, education model, which they call a competency-based model. Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that we organize academic content according to competencies. So what a student knows and can do, rather than following a more traditional scheme. And I know that definition is very broad. Basically, it makes the student the center of learning. It moves away from traditional exams based on memory, the traditional grading system. You can scrap all that. It's a different and new model, more innovative, one can say. The idea is to learn from real situations, to assimilate this knowledge and be able to transfer it to other contexts. I have to admit, I was struggling a little bit to get my head around this before we recorded, but you, you actually came up with a nice example. Uh, do you want to share that with us? Yeah, well, if we were to learn about the Spanish Civil War instead of memorizing what happened, the years, the people that was involved, uh, we could make a play about it. And that would involve creating characters, researching, you know, getting that information instead of getting the information, we have to search for it. So we'll learn how to look for information and then we can apply that to other contexts or other problems when we want to learn different things. I mean, I get the theory. I mean, that's quite useful in the real world then, isn't it? When we have access <laughs> with the internet to unlimited information and, the, and, you know, research skills are obviously, well, in a lot of jobs, you know, how to find out the information is more important than actually knowing the information. So I get it. But critics say there are less contents. And it's true. The people who advocate for this model the defense that the other curriculum had too many contents. So we need to... So too much content. So basically too much stuff to learn. Exactly. No? And then memorizing, spitting it out in the exam and then forgetting about it. Mm -hmm. They say this model has two types of uh, content, of knowledge. One of them is essential and the other one is acquirable. And this is what we were talking about with the play essential knowledge that school needs to give you. You need to know when the civil war happened, but you need to, to also learn how to research information to then apply it to real life. And that's what they call acquirable knowledge. Exactly. Okay, well, to find out uh, a few more views, uh, you've also been speaking this week with two teachers. Let's have a listen to Javier Masso and Tony Pedragosa. The poor PISA results show that something is not quite right in Catalan education, but what? While some say that the competency-based model is not working, others say it is not even being implemented. So what's the reality in classrooms? Tony Padragosa, a secondary school teacher and member of the Clam Educativo platform, says that they believe that society should not overreact to the poor PISA results, but should use them as an opportunity to reflect on our educational model. He says that the PISA tests were bad precisely because they evaluate competencies, and we're still not working in that way. Xavier Masso, a secondary school teacher and secretary general of the Profesors de Secundaria Union, thinks otherwise. 
Jo entenc que per raó era perfectament previsible, perquè seria per raó... Xavier blames the poor results precisely on the application of innovative pedagogical formulas, which he says have affected the quality of learning. He mentions project-based learning, which, in his opinion, abandons student effort, knowledge transfer and memory techniques. Tony, however, says that Klamadukatiu believes that most secondary school teachers still evaluate students using traditional methods. And mentions a 2018 study that indicates that only 10% of schools in Spain are working with a competency-based model, although he admits that there is no clear data on how many classrooms are working on this model now, because he says that profound changes are difficult to implement and that there is a lack of proper guidance and training. Xavier, on the other hand, says that the implementation of the new model is more advanced. And he argues for a return to a traditional model based on the transmission of knowledge. Tony prefers to avoid the dichotomy traditional is good, innovative is bad, or vice versa. Flam Educatiu defends that teachers need to evaluate what has worked for them and share their experience with others. He encourages teachers who feel able to work by competencies and projects to do so, but says that if other teachers feel more comfortable with the old methods and it works for them, that's fine too, as long as they follow proper criteria, planning and check that it really works. In the competency-based model, Xavier says, memory, content and routines have been abandoned. And those things make students disconnect, he says. Tony, on the other hand, believes that delivering a lecture, like teachers used to do, is very simple and that being an educator is about more than that. He says that the hard part is teaching students to develop skills that will be useful in their lives, both personally and professionally, and that teaching children to simply pass an exam has little value. So, what do we do to improve? Clam Educatiu believes that teachers should spend more time working together, sharing knowledge and developing strategies, and that we need to help struggling schools and redistribute the most vulnerable students to reduce segregation. Finally, they say teachers need more training and evaluation. That was Xavier Masso and Tony Pedragosa. Our thanks to the two of them. Oriol, when these piece results came out on December the 5th, there was a really like, significant, I would say, political response. Yeah, it's been on the political agenda for a couple of months, I would say. And even society has been having a huge debate, as we've just seen. Even on social media, newspapers, you read about education daily. And that's something that it's not common to read about schools every day, so it's on the agenda. And the Catalan president even convened a summit of all the political parties, which again, is not something that happens often. No, it doesn't. Pere Aragonés uh, called the summit uh, with all the parties in parliament, and basically they came out with this working group, group of experts, that will draw up a plan and some proposals, and they should be in place on the next academic year. Yeah, so that was one of the things, they want changes to happen quickly. And I suppose that's one of the points, you know, okay, results, say in these PISA tests, they've, they've gone down since three or four years ago. But if you make changes in the education system, how long does it actually take for those to be manifested themselves in people's learning? Because obviously, 
if you start in primary school, you know, people are in education until they're 18. So I guess one thing to bear in mind is that changes take a long time to have an effect, I would argue, you know. Yeah, and that's one of the problems we've found when analyzing the results is that you cannot look at things that happened two, three, four years ago. You need to look much further, to look 10, 15, 20 years ago. So this working group uh, of experts, it has broad support of a, a big majority of parliament. And uh, a lot of the parties as well are pushing for this 6% of uh, funding for education in the next budget. We'll also find out about that in the coming weeks. Uh, I mean, I don't think it's going to jump from 2.5% to 6%, but I do think uh, we will see a, a bit of an increase. As long as the parties all get together and agree a budget, which is uh, another topic for another day. In fact, we've already seen a budget increase, not in Catalonia, but in Spain. Last week, Pedro Sánchez promised more funds for the next budget towards a plan to strengthen math and reading in schools. So that means that schools maybe can have additional teachers to have less students per class in maths and reading. So kind of to get better results on those. Yeah. And well, just you mentioned maths and reading and obviously the PISA tests are maths, reading and science, which I get are, you know, very important, obviously viewed the, the most important subjects. But I guess we shouldn't forget either that there are other a lot of other things that get get taught in schools as well that aren't really included in, in these PISA tests. I suppose it's worth pointing out. The debate is set to run and run. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens, what these experts say. Uh, we'll have all of that in the coming weeks on catalannews.com. Time now for our Catalan phrase. What's it this week, Uriol? Fe mans y manigas. Fe mans y manigas. Literally, to do hands, or maybe to get hands on. Manigas? Is manigas sleeves, no? Yeah, so to yep. do hands and sleeves. You know, before doing something with your hands, you always pull your sleeves up. Uh -huh. uh, as in, I'm going to do something uh, yeah, <laughs> great. I'm going to work hard now. So, yeah, that, that would be really make an effort to get something really work hard, basically. So that's what it means. So, yeah, shout out to all the teachers out there who <laughs> are uh, making a big effort, uh, working hard, and fent mans y manigas, if that's how you would use it. Yeah, it also means struggle a little bit. That's us for today. Thank you very much for listening. You can get in touch with us at fillingthesink at acn.cat. Thanks again to Monica Nadal, to Xavier Masso, and to Tony Pedragosa. Thanks to you, Uriol. And thanks to you, Lorcan. It's great to have you back. We're back again next weekend with another episode of Filling the Sink. That one on the amazing things happening up at Girona FC. Until then, for me, Lorcan Doherty, and all of us here at Catalan News, bye for now. Adeus. Thank you.